As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. That I love the thought of Jesus' first emotion when he hears the need of, of these men was what? Compassion. His heart broke for them. As we dive into the scriptures today, I want to be talking a little bit about what drives our life. So what motivates us? What motivates you? What makes you wake up in the morning? What are you living for? And today I want to just show you what I believe was part of what Jesus lived for. What, as we look through the scriptures, one of the things that we can know, how do we live our life on purpose? Is we should look to the God-man, Jesus, and go, how did he live his life on purpose Today, I want us to look, look at what motivated Jesus above anything else. Not above anything else, but really motivated his heart, what his feeling was as he saw people. There's a lot of things in the world that can motivate us. A lot of people are motivated by different things. People are motivated by fame. People are motivated by money, by success, by popularity, what, by what people think of them. Uh, one of the people I think of that has all of those things Playing in the Super Bowl today. It is Super Bowl Sunday, so we got to talk about Super Bowl for a second. You got Tom Brady. Uh, some might call him the GOAT. So, for a lot of you older people that don't know what that terminology means, you may have seen that. You're like, what is this thing they're saying, GOAT? It's greatest of all time. They call the GOAT. And so, Michael Jordan was the GOAT of basketball. Some might say LeBron, but it was Jordan. Uh, but some might say that Tom Brady is the greatest of all time. I know for most of you, you hate him. Uh, but you should love him like Jesus loves him. Uh, but Tom has had some unbelievable accomplishments. Five Super Bowl championships. He's going for a six. He'll be the oldest quarterback to play in a Super Bowl today. He's made millions and millions and millions of dollars. He just got voted last night the MVP of, of the NFL this year. Unbelievable accomplishments. Not just unbelievable accomplishments on the field, but he has what every fleshly person would want. Fame, success, his wife is a supermodel, he's known around the world, he has his own brand, he has his own endorsements. But Tom in 2009 was interviewed by 60 Minutes. And it was after, he was a young guy, he was 30 then, uh, he had been in the league for about eight years. Tom had come in as an overweight guy, if you've ever watched his combine which is like the training for the nfl he was slow and overweight and he was picked in the seventh round and he went from this person that really no one thought was going to be good in the nfl to one of the greatest quarterbacks and in 2009 he was interviewed by 60 minutes and they go tom you have everything every person ever wanted you have three super bowl rings at this time you have supermodel what else does a man want and i wanted to show you a 30 second clip of what tom brady said 
Tom Brady, it goes on to say all his accomplishments. And the interviewer asked him, isn't this amazing? And he goes, there's got to be something more than this. The greatest quarterback of all time, potentially, goes, it's got to be something more than this. I want us to look at today what maybe Jesus might say, what motivated Jesus more than fame, more than success, more than money, what stirred Jesus' heart, what drew him into people more than anything else. I want to look today at Jesus' compassion on people. We're going to be in Matthew 9, 35 through 38, and this is where we'll start. It says this, and Jesus, he went throughout all the cities and the villages, and he did what Jesus does. He taught in their synagogues. He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, and he healed every disease and every affliction. This was Jesus' MO. Once he, uh, was, he kind of did the 40 days in the desert, if you guys remember that. He was 40 days. He, at the end of the 40 days, he was tempted by Satan. He says, get away from me, Satan. He quotes all this scripture, and then he goes into this actual time where he's ministering to people. And in Matthew 5, we see the Sermon on the Mount, which is an unbelievable read. Five, Matthew 5 through 7, you see what Jesus is kind of like, his message is to, that he's proclaiming. And the Sermon on the Mount just flips it all up upside down. It, it takes what religious people said was what following God was. And he goes, no, this is what it means to follow God. He said some radical things. And he said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Later on, he said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And he goes on to say in Matthew 7, he goes, ask and it will be given to you. He goes, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be open. And at the end of Matthew 7, the end of the Sermon on the, on the Mount, after he does, says all these amazing teachings, do you know what the people said when they heard it? They were amazed. They were amazed because they had never heard anyone speak with this kind of authority. They had heard teachers of the law for years, and it had never come, and it had never impacted them that much. But then it just goes on. Matthew 8, we see Jesus. He heals a leper. He heals the demon-possessed man. Remember, he takes the, the demon-possessed man and throws the demon into the pigs, and the pigs jump off the cliff. And the man leaves changed forever. We see a lame man. He says, what do you want? He goes, I want to be healed. He goes, well, then take up your mat and walk, and you're healed. We see him raise a man's daughter back to life in Matthew 8. What was Jesus doing? This. He was going from town to town, village to village, place to place. Preaching, proclaiming the gospel, healing, loving people. So in Matthew 9, we see this. He says he's going and he's been healing. He's been inter interacting with people time and time again. And Matthew 9, 36 says this. It says, when he saw the crowds. So remember, Jesus has been doing this for a while. He had been going to town, to village, to town, to village, seeing all the people. And it says this, when he saw the crowds, what did he have? He had compassion. He hurt for them. He longed for them because they were harassed. They were helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. This word compassion, 
It's splognizomai in the Greek, which I only say Greek words when they actually mean something. But compassion, it says this. Here's what it goes. Because, you know, pastors and preachers, like, say the Greek word, and you're like, that's exactly what it means. You're like, why did you tell me the Greek word? But here's the Greek word, what it actually means. It says this. It says it is a deep longing, like, like a longing in one's bowels. So a compassion that is moved to one as one to bowels. It's kind of like when I ate Indian food the other day. It's like that. It's like a deep sensation in your stomach. It's not like that. It's even greater than that. It's a pity. It's a, it's a longing. It's, have you ever felt that about someone where you just have a compassion on them? Where it hurts in your gut? Where you're just like, man, I want to see something change in that person. It's this longing. It's this deep desire in my life, in 1988, Halloween night, my life was forever changed. I was only three and a half years old, but my brother was two. My brother was born a normal baby, just like any other baby, had no problems. Awesome kid. At two years old, my dad wakes up on Halloween night, and he hears this. And it's Blake kicking the wall. And if you've ever had a two-year-old that won't sleep, you don't really have compassion on that. I, I more have annoyance and you're, when you hear. So he goes in, frustrated that Blake is kicking the wall to, to put him back to bed, to hold him, to put him back. Blake's not kicking the wall out of defiance. Blake is in a seizure, and his leg is hitting the wall over and over and over again. And at that time, my, my parents call the, call, the EO, call the ambulance. They rush him to the hospital. My brother s- sits in a coma for three days. And my dad was not going to church. My mom was not going to church. At that time, we were not a Christian family. And he goes in the chapel of the church, and he just goes, God, please, please save my son. Didn't know if he'd ever come out of the coma. Third day, Blake comes out of a coma. But the thing with Blake is he had a third of his brain destroyed that, those three days. For the rest of his life, he has had seizures. He's had brain problems. He's, thir- he's 31 years old, my brother, and he is never, he, he probably interacts probably like a 12, 13, 14-year-old. I grew up with Blake. I, I remember just watching Blake struggle through elementary school. I was two years older, old, older than him. So I'd get calls, you know, from the nurse, hey, Blake's in a seizure, and they wouldn't know what to do. So I would go in as like a, a fifth grader and help him. I remember watching my brother in middle school get bullied, made fun of, and I'm like, gosh, I I know they're just kids, but they don't understand. Blake's struggling. Like, why would you make fun of him? Blake will never have a girl. He's never had a girlfriend. He'll never have, be able to have a steady job unless a miracle of God happens. The other day, I was in the grocery store, and I saw a little girl with Down syndrome. I, for me personally, I can barely see anyone with any learning disabilities without just bawling my eyes out. And I remember seeing this girl and I was like, oh, God, I know how she feels. I know what she's going through. I know her pain. I know her family's pain because I have been there. I watched it with Blake my entire life. Why do I feel that longing and that compassion? I've been there. This is how Jesus felt when he saw the harassed and helpless. His heart 
turn for them. He was like, there has got to be an answer for these people. We got to do something. He's looking at his disciples. He sees the crowds and he goes, there has got to be an answer. See, Jesus knew the pain. He didn't know the sin pain, but he had been in a perfection with the Father. He had never had to deal with sin. He was in heaven, yet he comes, he, and he is perfect, but he lives in a sinful world. And when you've lived in a perfect world and you come to a sinful world, you start seeing these people are struggling. They're harassed and helpless. What are we going to do? And he has compassion. They're sheep without a shepherd. Someone's got to lead them. They're just struggling. They're, they're running around and they don't know where to go. They don't know what to give their time to. They don't know where to love. They don't know where to care about. Jesus has compassion. If you're a follower of Jesus and you see someone that's harassed and helpless, you know what our emotion should be? It should be that of like mine with Blake. You remember back when you were in sin? When you were separated from the Father, when you did not know Christ, what your life was like. Sometimes we forget when we've been in the, knowing Jesus for years and years and years. We forget to what misery it is to be separated from God. But we know their pain. We should look at them and go, I know where you're at and I want to see something different. The world is harassed and helpless. Don't you see it when you walk around? Like, don't you see people living for things that don't bring them hope? Living for the next fun, the next thrill. Maybe you've lived like this for a long time where you're, you're looking for long-term joy, yet you never find things that last very long. You might find a little bit of happiness that lasts for a minute, but it just seems fleeting. See, sin, what sin does is it harasses people. It does not give them the life that God has intended for them. Every year I work for a college ministry, I get a call from a guy. It's like every year. It's crazy how it happens. Every year I get a call from a guy, and he's like, hey, Jason. And I've met him from some way, somehow, some interaction. And I could tell they're like these, you know, 18, 19-year-old guys are super manly. You know, they don't show any emotion, which makes you a man. And they're like kind of fighting back tears, and they're calling me. And when I get a call from a college guy versus a text, I know it's serious. But I'm getting a call, and I get a call every year. And I go, and I typically, the same, same story happens every time. I sit down with them in some public place, and then in about 10 minutes, they go from tough guy to bawling their eyes out. And all of them are not believers, and every single one of them is chasing sin and living for sin. And what I see is they're harassed and helpless. They're like a sheep without any leading. They're just running around. They're doing whatever their heart tells them to do. And they're struggling. When you see people that are hurting, think of someone in your life right now, someone that you know that is away from God, does not know God, that you could tell is harassed and helpless. Think about that person for a moment. Do you have what Jesus had? compassion see compassion is a moving action it breaks you down it makes you want to do something if i could find my brother blake if i could find anything to help him i have such a heart for him my heart 
desires for him to have a normal life, a full life. If I could find anything to help Blake, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go do whatever it takes to help him. If it's the latest medicine, I'm going to go try to find that latest medicine. Because uh, compassion, it moves you. It does something to you. This is why Jesus had compassion. It moved him to do something. Jesus's compassion will always move you to action. Jesus's compassion will always move you to action. My problem is my natural response in life is not compassion. <laughs> I, I'll just be honest. I'm, I have sin in my life. I, I don't always, my first reaction when someone like I interact with someone is typically, it's sometimes compassion, but a lot of times it can just be annoyance. Like I was up at Eldora skiing with my kids it, yesterday. We were at a ski race watching our nephew ski. If you've ever been to Eldora on a windy day, it was that times two. It was 60 mile an hour winds. They shut down the main lift. And I had the bright idea to still take my kids up the small lift because I'm like, we're here. Let's just go. So me and Sayla and Judah, we jump on the little three-man lift. We go up, and it's, like, really windy. I'm like, isn't this fun? <laughs> you know, it's like trying to act like it's really fun. And we get up there, and it's just, like, Sayla can't even stop. She, the wind just keeps pushing her down the hill. I have the little leash thing on Judah because he's can ski, but he doesn't believe in stopping yet. So, <laughs> you know, it's like, hold him back, but the wind's pulling me too. We go down once, and I'm like, everybody was having a good time. And I'm like, all right, let's go again. So we go again, we get up on the lift, and we start going down about a quarter of the way down. Judah just breaks down. I think he was being tough guy, but he was just so cold. He's like, my hands, and I took off his gloves real quick, and they were just miserably cold. I, I brought some old gloves because his other gloves were wet, and they were not good at all. So I take my gloves off and put on them, and he's just crying. I mean, he's a tough dude, but he was just screaming, snotty nose, I'm cold, I hate this. And so you know, if you've ever been there as a parent, maybe not because you're not as dumb as I am, but I'm like skiing with him between my legs. I'm like telling Sayla to go and we're like going to the lodge and it is just misery. And I remember walking in and this lady just like bullies her way in front of me and knocks over Judah. And I just had compassion on her. <laughs> it's like, you don't know what's going on in my life. You don't know what's happening to me right now. I don't have compassion on you. There's so many times in my life where I don't see people like Jesus sees people. Compassion doesn't motivate me. My agenda motivates me. Where I'm going in life motivates me. But when you stop for a moment and you look at the world like Jesus did, I, I imagine this scene like this, that he's, he's going with his disciples, their towns and villages, and then he just stops and he's like, hold up, guys, and he looks over all the crowds. Man. They're harassed and helpless. They're sheep without a shepherd. We have to do something. And his eyes were that of love. So Jesus, in the next verse, he gives us the answer to the harassed and helpless. He goes on to say, in 37, he says, Then he said to his disciples, as he's looking over the crowds, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. That word laborer, how I would just define it, is basically someone who loves God, cares about God, and wants others to know him. Someone that knows God, cares about God, walks with God, knows Jesus. Jesus is ever changing their life. And their heart is one that they want others to know it. And Jesus' solution to the problem of humanity is he goes, 
Guys, there's a massive problem. There's a massive problem. The harvest is plentiful, but the pastors are few. Did he say it? No. The harvest is plentiful, but the church is few. No, he didn't say that. The harvest is plentiful, but the missionaries are few. He said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. I think the reason he used labor is because he wanted to hit every single person that followed him could be a laborer. It wasn't a vocational thing. It wasn't you had to sign up for a five-year mission trip. It was, guys, we have a massive issue. I'm not going to be able to reach all these people. Jesus knew that he wouldn't reach the crowds. He knew he was going to die pretty soon. He goes, how we're going to reach them is the everyday person that follows me is going to reach them. The harvest is plentiful. In John 4, Jesus says this, Do you have a saying, it is still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Jesus is going, open your eyes. The people need to know. There's so many people out there in Boulder County right now that need to know Jesus. And a lot of times, in the back of my mind, I'm like, they don't really care. But the scripture I read, Jesus is going, no, open your eyes. Open your eyes. The harvest is ripe. The problem is not with the harvest. The problem is with the laborers or the workers. The harvest is ripe. Someone's just got to go out there and get it. Someone's got to go reap the harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And I think there's a misnomer in a church today. I think this is maybe one of the things that has made us ineffective as a church is this, is that you're either called into full-time ministry or you're not called into full-time ministry. A lot of people think like, oh, Pastor Matt, he's a professional Christian. Jason, he's a professional Christian. They're paid to do this stuff. Do you know you guys know more lost people than Matt does? His job is to lead our congregation. Now, Matt, I love Pastor Matt. The reason I came to Valley Community is because he shares his faith. He's always interacting with people. You, I don't, Matt's always meeting with people at coffee shops. I'm literally like every, every time I see Matt in the community, he's with a different person. But his job is not the only person. It's, it's not the harvest is plentiful. We need more pastors. We need more vocational ministers. The harvest is plentiful, and every single one of us are called to full-time ministry. We're called to reach the people around us. We're called to influence. We're called to be godly people at our work. We're called to act in a godly way. Even sometimes when people don't get why we act a certain way, we act like Jesus acts because we're a representation of Jesus. I really believe that the gospel, the harvest would be reached if us as the church would not view certain people in full-time ministry, but that we're all in full-time ministry because Jesus called us to it. So what's really interesting about this passage is it's very unconventional. So he goes, just looks at the crowds, harassed, helpless, and he sees the problem. We need more laborers in the workforce. We need more laborers reaching their friends. We need more laborers sharing the gospel. We need more laborers reaching these people And so this is Jesus's action point. What led Jesus's compassion into action is this. Therefore, pray. Hmm. Therefore, pray 
earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I don't know about you guys, but when I see a massive problem, my first instinct is to do something about it. Like, I'm not God. That's why I didn't write this stuff. But if I, I was like, hey, we had a big problem here. My first step would be like, let's go do something about it. Like, everyone, let's leave our jobs. Let's go reach the world for Christ. Jesus is a little unconventional. He goes, no, we're going to pray. We're going to pray that God would send out people to the harvest. We're going to ask God to do something. Like I said, when I have a problem, my first reaction is to go do something about it. Salo is in ski lessons, uh, and they get, put her in the wrong class for a, a, the first half of a day, and she was, like, with the babies, like, doing nothing. And I go, and I'm like, why is, well, this is a problem. we got to do something about it. I talk to the head ski person, ski instructor, and they're like, okay, we'll switch her. See, when I interact with a problem, I want to change it immediately. God interacts with a problem kind of like how I should interact with my wife. Like, you ever... Husbands, you ever like your wife tells you something and your first solution, you just give all the solutions to fix it and it never works out well. You know, I'm like, I, I'm 10 years in and it's still, I, I haven't learned yet that when Molly tells me something, it's not just go fix the problem. It's more listen to the problem, hear about the problem, consider the problem. It's unconventional. Jesus's unconventional way of doing things was pray to God. Here's the two reasons why I think it was pray. One, because Jesus is the one that will draw the hearts of the lost to himself. Great news, church. You do not have to be the one to draw people to Jesus. Jesus wants to do it. That's why we must go to God and pray for the harvest. We pray for workers. Second reason is this. Our hearts are not full with compassion. My heart day in and day out is not filled with Jesus' compassion and love for people unless I completely ask him for it. We have to pray. We have to ask God every single day when we wake up, God, please give me a heart for the compassion for people. And the prayer request is interesting in this, is it's pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers or workers into the harvest. I always call this the trickiest or the sneakiest verse in the Bible because really he's like, hey, you should pray for this. But the ultimate goal is that you would be, be this. See, when you pray for something, if you're praying for one of your coworkers day in and day out, God, send someone into their life. Send a laborer to love them, to care for them, to give them compassion. Send someone to speak the truth of the gospel in their life or to your family member or to your grandson or to your granddaughter. Send someone, God, will you send him out? Typically, what God starts doing on your heart is what? I think I'm supposed to be that person. God, maybe you're calling me to do this. Maybe I'm supposed to be the one to reach out to my love, to the people that I love in my life that don't know you. Do you know anyone that's harassed and helpless in your life? Are you praying for them day in and day out? Are you praying that God might send someone in their life to influence them? Are you praying that you might influence them? One of the goals of my life is to always have a top five list. Top five list. The five people I'm praying every day would come to know Jesus. Do you have that? Are you praying every day, God, bring these people to Jesus? And 
There's times I don't really care because I don't have Jesus's compassion. I would ask you, what is greater than someone knowing Jesus? I've done a lot of things in my life. There's a lot of good things that have happened to me. And top moments of my life are these. Married, married, my kid's birth. And then I think probably number three is all the examples of when I've got to see someone come to Jesus. When they get to cross over from death to life. When I get to see them that someday I will see them in heaven. There is nothing greater outside of those first few things I listed than someone coming to know Jesus. But Jesus' first step is to pray. This is why even we pray as a church. We ask God to send out laborers into the harvest. Matt always talks about our global partners. He talks about Russell today. He's, he's not a full-time missionary. He doesn't get paid by any nonprofit. He just wants to love Jesus and have an impact and an influence. And we're praying that God would send out laborers. You know how we could double this church? Is if each one of us were a laborer sharing the gospel and we led one to Christ and we brought here. I would double the church. That was Jesus' model, was he sent out people. And what's interesting, 9, 35 through 38, Jesus goes, pray that, pe- that laborers might be sent out. You know what happens in 10, 1? Very next verse in the Bible, he brings the disciples to himself. He says, you have all authority. You know what he does? Sends them out, two by two. Sends them out. This is the prequel to the being sent out. Let's pray. You need to have my kind of compassion, and you are being sent. So Jesus' compassion, it leads us to action. The first action is prayer. The second action is to be sent. To be sent. The disciples went out. They saw people come to, to hear the message, healed. They came to know Jesus And that same desire that Jesus had with the disciples, he has for us. He goes, you're sent out. You're sent out to your workplace. You're sent out to the the places you have influence. You're sent out to your family. You're sent out to have the kind of compassion I had to see the harassed and helpless come to know him. I was talking to Matt the other day, and we were talking about how long does it take for someone to be sent out? Like, if you just came to Christ today— like, how much do you need to go be sent out to reach others? Years, seminary training. What's the scriptures say? Think about it. When, when people were healed, what did they typically do? They proclaimed it. They shared it with their town. When God does something miraculous in your life, you can't help but share it. You can't help but tell it. Because if you really believe that people are dying, and they're separated from Jesus forever. They'll never know God unless they have the truth of the gospel in their life. You're going to do something about it. You're going to do something about it, and you'll share it immediately. I think when I look at this of being sent out, I think most people kind of fall into two ditches when it comes to being sent out as laborers in the harvest with, when it comes to sharing the gospel of Jesus. Ditch one, number one is the is to shove it down people's throat. Ditch number two is to shy away from it. Shove it down people's throat or shy away from it. So they're kind of complete opposites. Like, all right, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus. 
Who are all the people I don't know that need compassion? And I'm going to go Bible beat them down. Like every conversation, we're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to talk about their sin. We're going to talk about their need. Every work conversation, I'm not going to talk about their family. I'm not going to talk about anything else in life. I'm just going to talk about Jesus. There's very few people in the world I've ever met that are in that ditch, but there's a few. The other ditch, uh, it's not the right time. Like, I, I, I don't really know if I can ever bring up Jesus. I don't know if I could tell them about it. I don't know if, like, they even like me. I don't know if they trust me. I don't know. I'll, I'll wait another year. I'll wait another two years. I'll wait another five years. I'm just going to shy away from it. I think what Jesus wants is just to meet in the middle. It's to be people that live out the gospel. That how you work at your work would represent how Jesus worked. How you interact with your family, which is really hard sometimes, is to act like Jesus. And then your words have life. I was talking to a guy the other day. I go to this business uh, men's lunch or uh, Bible study once a month in Denver. It's awesome. The guy that leads it, I know really well, and he is just loves sharing the gospel. But he is super successful in business, and he acts like Jesus acts. And he doesn't slam it down people's throat. He just invites them to a Bible study. He invites them to church. And there's 70 guys in this Bible study this last week. And guy after guy keeps standing up. And you know how they got there? Ken invited them. I don't know what Ken is doing. He's just representing Jesus. Because I went and talked to a couple of these guys. I was just curious. I'm like, who are these guys? One hadn't been to church in 30 years. One was like, I think all religions are good. I'm kind of looking for anything. But they're at this Bible study hearing the gospel because Ken is representing Jesus in his workplace. This last October, I sat down with a guy named Daniel. Daniel was eating in the cafeteria, and I sat down next to him. He, he said, hey, what's up? And I go, hey, what's up, man? We just started talking about sports, life, where you're from, all this other stuff. And I just asked him, I'm like, hey, man, one of the things that's important, and we're like 20 minutes into a conversation. I go, one of the things important in my life is kind of my relationship with God. You ever thought much about that? And he's like, no, not really. I'm like, talk to him a little bit more. It's very normal, very casual. I go, man, sometime I'd love to tell you more about what, how God's helped me in my life. All right. So a couple days later, I go out to lunch with Daniel because I'm just like, okay, I'm going to be his friend, get to know him some more, get to know about his family, get to know about his life. And I get to walk through the gospel of Jesus. And Daniel had never really heard much about Jesus before. And it, when you interact with people like that, you're like, oh, there's no way they're interested. No way. Daniel was just so engaged with the gospel. And as I shared it with him, and as I walked through Jesus' sacrifice, he couldn't believe it. He goes, you want to make that decision to trust Christ with your life? He goes, I think I'm going to have to hold up for a little bit. All right, man. A couple weeks later, we got together. We played basketball together, uh, just a normal life activity. And I was shooting around. I go, Daniel, you thought any more about God? He's like, actually, I've been thinking about it every night. And you know what it showed me? that I'm not the one that calls them. That's why we pray to God. And we go, God, you got to do something. But God was already working in Daniel's life. And as I got to talk and interact with Daniel a couple more times, the last time I, or in, yeah, in about December, I go, hey, Daniel, how's your life doing? And he goes, man, I'm doing really well. Like, all of a sudden, I just want to, like, read the Bible more. And I don't want to do things that I used to do. I go, you think you've made that decision to trust Christ? And he's like, I think I have. I think I have. And Daniel's been reading the Bible weekly now. He's going to a Bible study every week. 
Why? Nothing I did, but I had compassion on a guy that I started talking to, and God opened the door. There are many people in our lives that God is opening the door. Rick Warren says this, if you want to know about if someone is interested in the gospel, there are two typical things that kind of spur someone. This isn't always true, but it's been really helpful for me. The two reasons, two areas of life that people are typically interested in Jesus is one transition. So they've moved cities, they've moved jobs, they've moved town. There, there's some sort of transition in their life. For a college student, it's moving from high school to college or a middle school, it's from middle school to high school. It's just a transition in your life where something big changes. It also could be maybe a family dynamic transitions. A lot of people start coming to church again when they have kids. It's a big transition in their life. The other reason is tragedy. When something bad happens, when someone's struggling, when someone's hurting, when someone needs an answer to something. So what I'm always asking God for is, who are you putting in my life in transition or tragedy? Would you open my eyes to it? And what I've learned is most people won't reveal that they're in much transition or tragedy to you right away. Do they? No one's like, I'm really struggling today, especially non-believers. It's not like, I'm really hurting. You got to dig. But most people don't get asked about their family. Most people don't get encouraged to hear just encouragement. Most people don't have someone asking them deep questions. When I've asked deep questions of people, what I learn is people start opening up. And when I start seeing someone in major tragedy or transition, I go, Oh, wait, God, are you doing something here? Is this person in my life for a reason? And I start asking them questions about Jesus. As we close up, I want to tell you this story. I, I met a guy who was harassed and helpless. I met him three weeks ago. I lead a Bible study at my house once a week, and a bunch of college people come over, and there's like 45 people in my house. We're cooking food, and I see this guy that I don't know He's ever, he's, I've never met him. He's just there. He's with one of the guys that came to know the Lord a couple years ago, and he brought him to this Bible study. Again, just reaching out to this guy. Uh, but this guy that I met, Mark, he had never heard the gospel before. And we're sitting there, and I didn't know this. I'm, we're walking through Matthew 7, 24 through 20, uh, 27, where it's the wise and foolish builders. And I asked this question, and we had been about 15 minutes in the Bible study, and there's about 10 people, 12 people in my group, and I look at him the whole time, because you're like, new guy, how's he feeling? You're like looking at the face response, and I'm like, he is hating life right now. Mark is hating life. He's hating being here. I'm like, oh man, I feel bad. I'm gonna have to go talk to this guy. I don't know where he's from, what his story is, is that we talk about wise and foolish builders. I go, have you ever built your house on the sand before? And all of a sudden, I see Mark's hand go up, and I'm like, this will be interesting. <laughs> Mark goes, hey, I I've been an atheist my entire life, and I've built my house on that sand. And somehow, some way, Beck over here invited me to this Bible study. And I, I'm kind of desperate right now. I have nothing left. Everything that I've built my life on is falling apart, and I need something different. He didn't know it's Jesus. He just knows he needs something different. And as he's, he's come back the last couple weeks, he's hear, heard the gospel from Beck. Beck shared the gospel with him. And I talked to Marcus the other day, and I go, how are you feeling, man? He's like, dude, this is like the best thing I've ever done in my life. You know why? Because Mark, for most of his life, has been harassed and helpless. A sheep without a shepherd. He's never had anyone interact with him. Jesus would say, the harvest is plentiful, but what? The workers, the laborers are few.
The ultimate need of humanity is Jesus Christ. No money, no fame, no success, nothing. Everything will fall apart at the end. Everything that Tom Brady will build his life upon will fall apart. And he knows it deep in his soul. The only thing that will last forever is Jesus and his kingdom. As we see people in our lives, their need is Jesus. I'm so thankful when I think of my brother Blake that he knows Jesus. He knows him in the best way he can. He loves God. He serves in the church every single week. He doesn't miss a week. He has all that hurt, all that pain, all that struggle. My heart breaks for him. But you know what makes me happy? Someday in heaven, his body will be glorified and he will be perfect and we will sit together for the first time and have an amazing conversation. We will sit at the feet of Jesus and glorify Jesus together. And you know what? I'm going to live my life for that day. So on the, on the, for today, for this earth, for this time, I want to see people how Jesus saw them, to have compassion on them, to love them. I want as many people in heaven with me that I possibly can see. And I can't do that. I need Jesus' power in me. We need Jesus' power in us. It's ultimately about Jesus. Jesus is the one that draws him. But Jesus' ultimate thing was the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And I would ask us, would we be workers in God's harvest? Like I said, this church would grow if we all took on the mantle of we are full-time ministers to the lost and hurting world. As we close, Jesus, 2,000 years ago, he prayed the prayer. He asked him, pray earnestly that God would send out laborers into the harvest. We're going to pray right now. The music team's going to come up. We're going to ask God for that same compassion. God, we are thankful that Jesus saved a wretch like us. When we look back to our own sin, when we look back to our own life, when I look back to all the dumb things I did in my own life, God, thank you for grace of your son Jesus that is upon me. Thank you for sending Kevin Little into my life to share the gospel with me. Lord, I thank you that he didn't shy away from it, but that he asked me hard questions and that he loved me like Jesus loved me, that he had compassion on me like Jesus had compassion on me. Lord, I pray that each person in here might have compassion. We, do, we normally don't have it, God, but we need it from you, God. We need you to give us that kind of compassion to reach others. Lord, I know right now we have so many people in our head that don't know you, God. I think of the few people on my list that I'm praying for. God, I would ask that you would draw them to you, God. And I ask that you'd give me the opportunity to speak truth, even when I'm scared, even when I'm nervous, that I would be filled with your Holy Spirit. God, make us a church that loves the world around us, loves the people in our lives, and that you might bless it, you might multiply it. And as we send out from here, God, We pray that you would make us laborers in the harvest.